get an educator, get a coach, get a trainer, get a partner, get somebody who knows more than you can shortcut your your path, your success. You're going to pay them or you're going to pay the street for what you learn, and the street is more expensive. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. This is the show for high-earning, busy professionals where we will teach you how to invest in real estate without buying yourself another job. I'm your host, Taylor Lotes, and today our guest is Neil Timmons. Neil is a very successful real estate investor who focuses today on industrial investing. But he didn't start that way. He started his career with Wells Fargo and rapidly became a successful real estate agent. After getting tired of the hustle that real estate agents have to go through to be successful, and he was incredibly successful, he sold his real estate agency and got into single family investing. That ultimately became kind of old and a lot of work, so he looked for another option. Specifically, he got into industrial investing, and that's what we're going to dig into today. How does industrial investing work? What types of properties does he look for? We also dig into industrial property classes, which is a common topic of conversation in the multifamily space where I invest, but you might not know, and I didn't know, that industrial investors talk about property class as well. And we get into some specifics as to what the industrial investors look for in terms of asset classes and so much more. We talk about his first industrial deal. A lot of great information in here. If you're looking for a blue ocean strategy where there may be tons of opportunity out there, industrial might be the one. He's got a lot of great info and you're going to learn a lot today. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor and I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. If you'd like to learn more about potentially partnering with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com and schedule a call. We will look forward to speaking with you soon. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Right now, once again, our guest is Neil Timmons. Let's go. Neil, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm looking forward to going through your journey, starting as a real estate agent, and then all the way making your way into industrial real estate. But before we get into your journey, can you tell us about what you're up to now? Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much. You know, what I do now is I I empower elite real estate agents to build and protect their wealth through commercial real estate investments. And specifically what my firm does is we have a core focus on, on industrial and flex property through the Midwest. Great, great. Okay. And we will get into discussing industrial and flex and how the business works. But first, I want to start out with rewinding back in your story and learning about how you got started in single family investing when you were an agent, because most agents never even get started in real estate investing. Yeah. You know, I I started my career in 2004. It became, became an agent, you know, let me give you the genesis of that, and then I'll, I'll work it through to how I stumbled into investments, because that's really how I got into the single family space. So I wor- worked for Wells Fargo for a couple of years. My mom and I are talking at one point, and she is, uh, I've got three brothers. So she's a stay-at-home mom for years and almost two decades. And she goes, you know, I'm trying to think what I should do. All the kids are out of the house, I'm trying to think about what I should do for, for a living, go back to work. And I said, you know what, mom? you like people and you drug me to every open house every Sunday for like years and years as a kid. I said, you should be a realtor. And she thought about it. She goes, you know what? 
you're right. That's what I'll do. I mean, literally, it's like a 10-second conversation. And so she, that's what she does. She goes, becomes an agent. Fast forward a year. She's telling me, here's what I did in the first year of being an agent. She made twice what I made of me working at Wells Fargo. And I thought, you know, I've got three brothers. I'm, I come from a very competitive household. I thought, you know what? If mom can do that, I can do better. And so I decided to become an agent. And, you know, rookie of the year, fast forward five years later, top REMAX agent in the state of Iowa. And I find myself out of really thinking I'm at the peak, but really what I'm at is, although things are successful on paper, I'm out of total control. I have no control of my time. I am in a spot where I'm burning the candle at both ends of the day. I'm ultimately creating a, a havoc lifestyle on myself, on my wife, on my three children. Everything I thought that I that I ultimately wanted, I thought what it would look like, reality looked totally different from that. And ultimately, that's where I, I became, I had to make a decision about, am I going to continue to live this way or doing it, choose a new path? And I chose a new path and that led me into investing in single families. So how did you strike that balance? Because you had so little control over your schedule, so little free time, and yet you wanted to add something else, essentially. How did you free up time to start your single family investing? I found myself at an impasse. Literally, my my wife's in the car with three little kids and she's going, I'm leaving for good. At that point, I owned a Remax. I owned the franchise. I, I had a team. There was a half a dozen of us cranking. And I was at a point where I had to make a life decision. And so for me, it was an easy decision to go, give me 30 days, sweetheart. I'll sell my Remax. I will retire, essentially, retire as an agent. And I will choose a totally different path. And I was, unlike a lot of agents I know, I was at a spot where financially I could do that. I had done extraordinarily well through my 20s and in my early 30s. I was at a spot where I, I had I had some level of control over what I could do. And so I did that and made a decision to go, all right, well, I'm going to sit on the sidelines for selling houses as an agent, and I'm going to figure this thing out as an investor. And then I'm, I'm shortcutting the story, right? But, you know, my wife and I just celebrated 21 years of marriage and, and the awesome. investment thing worked out. And I know we're uncovering the meat of the story here today. Yes, yes, absolutely. And congratulations on that anniversary. So burning the ships and getting yeah. into full-time investing, but you didn't stick with single families forever. You got into industrial and flex space. So how much did you do in the single family investing space before you realized that this isn't doing it. Over, I started fixing and flipping, buying and retaining rental properties, built a portfolio of, I'd say, nearly 40 doors or so. And, you know, somewhere along the way, you're going, all right, well, this is interesting, but what else is out there? And then I'd get an opportunity presented to me about five years ago, maybe six at this point on the industrial side. And I bought my first property there. Months go by and I'm like, you know what? I never hear from this tenant and I'm the property manager. I was going, you know what? I think I'm onto something here. And so that led me down the commercial real estate path. And so I was doing both things, fixing, flipping, retaining rentals when they made sense on the single family side and strategically buying commercial property when it made sense. And I would buy, uh, I bought, and we still own a multitude of assets 
different asset classes on the on the commercial side and really fallen in love over the course of the last couple of years with industrial and have gone much narrower on the industrial side, industrial influx. Great. So I think a lot of folks, when you know we hear about industrial investing, we're not even really sure what that means as far as the business model of the investment goes. We might be able to picture an industrial yeah. property in our mind that we're familiar with, but from the standpoint of an investor, how do you even start to approach the actual business case of an industrial investment? So what's the model? Yeah. Well, let's start with the end in mind too. The end in mind for me, you know, as, as getting out of the, being the realtor, being a, a person who's out showing houses every hour of every day and, and thus turning back and serving the community I came from is to generate passive income is to put passive income in place, steady ongoing returns so that a person can become agent optional so that they don't have to be out there showing homes, listing homes when they don't want to, so that they don't feel burdened and bad about not taking a phone call at 9 p.m. at night from a client because they want to spend time with their family and their children. At the end of the day, it is about putting reasons and passion about why we do the things we do. And these dollars, the money that we are, are out there to generate need to serve us. And for me, it was serving a lifestyle I wanted to, to leave and ultimately have the freedom of choice. You know, so many of, I got into real estate as an agent to have control, to have the freedom and the flexibility to live the lifestyle I want to live. And, and that's ultimately what these investments are there to serve. Now, what does it look like in terms of how do you put a business together and, a, and, a, and an investment together so that works? You know, we're looking for specific, we got, we have, you know, we got a buy box, if you will, Property has to be of certain size. It has to have certain criteria, things like dock doors, things like roll-up doors make a difference. Things like clear height. Clear height today on new buildings is probably 36 foot, 32 foot, somewhere in that range. All the big boys, if you will, that would be you know credit-rated companies. They're looking for at least 24s in their clears today. You know, we can go back, and I like to play in the, the next tier down. That is B-class properties. C plus to B class properties, properties that were built anywhere from, let's say, 15 to 40 years ago that have at least 14 to 16 foot clears, properties that'll never get built again. Why? Because you can never afford to build them again. A property that's 20 to 30,000, 40,000 square feet, ones that we'd like to buy, will never be constructed again in many cases because the new things that are getting put up are 75, 100, 200,000 square feet. And so our case there is there's always going to be a need there. There's always going to be somebody who wants to occupy that space because the new stuff that's getting built doesn't look like the old stuff that was built years and years ago. And so we can find that and end up with a really good tenant. Sometimes it's a regional tenant. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's a national tenant. And oftentimes it's a local tenant. We're looking at strong tenant, somebody who has been around for a period of years that has a strong business and strong business model, who's been through a cycle or two so that we can project ahead to know that they can make it through the next one that may come, whatever that may be. Oftentimes, we're looking at finding an, a value-add opportunity. And now, value-add, you know, you know this from your experience in the multifamily world. That's easy to understand that. But when you apply that to go, what's a value-add piece look like in industrial? That doesn't quite, that doesn't quite look the same. You know, we're looking for some sort of component where we can move the needle on value over the course of the next five years. What can that look like? 
well, it can look like a legacy lease. Somebody's been there a number of years that today their rent is under market. They were to release that building today, it doesn't look the same, but they still have years left. So we can mark to market, meaning take their rent to market over the course of the next five years, whenever that lease is up. Great. That's a, that's a terrific ability for us to move the needle in value. Sometimes there's excess ground. We recently brought a property that ended up with two parcels that came with it, total of six and a half acres, a buildable parcel zoned industrial that was not priced in the deal. So we literally got six and a half acres for free. Well, we think we can either build a suit on that or sell those parcels off and reap that reward. Certainly over the next five years, we think a much shorter time frame. Those are two examples. Sometimes there's if we buy a building that has multiple tenants, maybe it's in a modified gross lease where we can move people to a triple net. And, and that essentially just means we get the tenant to pay for things like property taxes, insurance, and repairs. And we morph that lease to that over a period of time. We make those con- those expenses to be controlled and, and push that down to the burden of the tenant instead of us. Interesting. Okay. So there's quite a bit there. I found it interesting that you talked about property class kind of in the way that those of us in multifamily investing talk about property class as well. You invest in the CB region. And you mentioned a few things that would make a property a C or B class property, but what are other aspects that you might look at to evaluate whether an industrial property falls, you know, CBA, I don't know if you guys do D and on down, but property class. Yeah. So the big ones are what's the age of the property? What's the clear height? That's a big factor. What is the geographic location? So much like, much like residential multifamily, you're looking at the exact same thing. Those are, those are really the, the largest ones. The configuration of the building plays a, a pretty good factor. I don't know that it would skew the classes, but it's certainly a buy criteria for us. Because once in a while, you've got a manufacturing company who would have, you know, they started here and they had this property and then their business grew. And so therefore, they just added on another 20,000 square feet to their building. And then they did it again. And then they did it again. Before you know it, you've, you know, you've got a Frankenstein type building and it may be a really good operator and a really good, a really good business. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm left wondering who's going into that property in the event they leave. That's a very important question. And I'm glad that you brought up the topic of vacancy. So I wanted to ask as well about when you're looking for properties to buy, one of the potential indicators of distress is how occupied it is, right? How much does it have coming in the door? Do you have tenants and everything like that? So what are your thoughts about like a minimum occupancy you might look for? Do you buy you know, vacant properties? And if so, what do you pay if they don't have any income? So it's a terrific question. You're exactly right. And that is one of the uniqueness, very different from multifamily. You know, you get multifamily, you have a hundred units in one place and you're going to budget for some level of occupancy. In the industrial world, let's just take it in the most extreme case, you have a single tenant building. So you're all or none, right? So just like a single family home, it's either all or none. The, the the kind of the difference from a single family home, if you will, is when they do move in, generally they're signing a four, five, six, seven, eight, ten year lease. They're committing to a very long period of time to stay there. When we can properly, you know, when we underwrite and understand a market at a high level, I don't mind taking on a property that's totally vacant. In fact, 
if, if done correctly, I actually lean into that because it can provide us tremendous upside opportunity for us to go and, and underwrite it to go, how long is it going to take? And what are the expenses going into that? And how long are we going to have to hold that vacancy? Because I know we're going to be able to do, place a tenant in there and we're in a really good leasing environment, even to this, even at this point in time, that there is strong for, for property, especially in how we, the size ranges in which we're operating in. You know, if I was at a hundred or 200,000 square feet and I had to take that down, that doesn't look quite the same at a demand level as 20 to 40, 20 to 50,000 square feet looks like. So we've leaned into that and I really like those, those properties when we can buy them correctly. The other side, the challenging piece is, as you, as you, can, can, as you can think, is that going in a loan is different, especially in today's environment. The, the ability to put a loan on a vacant property which we've been able to successfully do, but you really got to get a lender and have really strong lending partners to know that one can execute at a high level and can properly underwrite for, for the vacancy that's there. You've got to have a strong lending partner on board with you to be able to see it through. Yeah, I can see that. Absolutely. And relationships up and down are very important. So let's talk about the first deal that you did in this space. You have all this knowledge and all this competence, if you will, in the space now that you've built up over time, but that first deal is always, in my opinion, the most difficult because you don't know exactly right. what the right thing to do is in any given situation. So tell us about the first yeah, one. The very first commercial property I bought was a 16,000 square foot industrial warehouse. The largest grocer in the Midwest occupies the property. They run their bakery out of it. That's how they utilize the space. And so it came to me in off market through a broker. And I was at a spot where I was going, let's analyze this. And what does this mean for me in the form of tax deductions? All right. So I'm making pretty good money and I'm going, what is this? What does my cost seg look like? And how much can I, how much can I really not pay in taxes this year? And so that became a, a, a large factor, not the only factor, but a large factor in going, all right, I really like this nice deal. There's a, when it comes to cost segregation, you know, in, industrial properties are really rich, meaning we get a lot of tax benefit from from the cost seg side of things, and can thus can lower our taxable income. And that's you know that's one of the benefits of being a you know come being an investor and also being a realtor. Sometimes you can take advantage of all the tax benefits because you're taxed as a real estate professional, unlike say a doctor who can only offset their passive income on the realtor side of things. That we can offset our all our income, all all of our all of our highly taxed income that takes place because of how we earn money. So sixteen thousand uh, square feet, very long term lease. This tenant had signed with their original lease, along with if you stack up all their options to extend. Ready for this? Forty years, four zero. Forty Whoa. years is how long they have control of this property, and so. When I when I bought the property, I want to say they had 16 years left, and so now we're into it, and it's chugging along just fine. It's just it's just steady Eddie, and there's literally there. I think I've gotten two phone calls in the last five years from these folks. Wow, and they pay right on time. No big deal. I mean, it's ACH. You don't even get checks. It's ACH. Money comes in the account on the first, like clockwork. There isn't much to it. So I think a lot of folks in this space are here to aim for some degree of financial freedom. Yeah. That's their goal, right? 
but they don't think, okay, what am I going to do? What are my priorities going to be once I get there? So how did reaching a position of financial independence and financial freedom impact your priorities, what you look for, and kind of how you behave in difficult markets like today where rates are high, you know, it's tough to get, it can be tough to get loans and, you know, things are just a bit slower than they used to be. Yeah. The, the reaching financial independence, that the question that, that lines up to the environment. Yeah. Well, the biggest impact mm-hmm. is I don't have to do anything, meaning I don't have to go off and place investments. It just to, just to make a dollar, if you will. So I'm not, we don't, I don't have the demands of having to run a syndication because I have staff here that we have to pay people. I've got a portfolio that's cash flowing where we can, we have the ability because of how we earn money inside the portfolio that's been built over a period of time that I'm not forced to make a an investment unless it's a really good investment, unless we believe it's a really good investment, if that makes sense. Yeah, the other ability is I get to choose it's a, it's a lot of ability, a lot of things that are just not financially related. It's the benefit of the money. It's, I get to choose who I want to work with. And so that's why I've turned around and, and help realtors do the same thing through their investments. So ultimately, they get to drive the, the benefits of financial freedom for themselves, choosing who they want to work with, their buyers and sellers, clients on a day-to-day basis, so they can choose when they get to want to work. So they don't have to have the feelings of, I'm letting my I'm letting my family down because I have to go do these things so they can go to a kids baseball game a grandkids game and not feel like I always have to be on I always have to be networking with the other people in the crowd because I'm always looking for the next lead to go close a house right so they can choose how they want to work when they want to work it's ultimately just putting them in the control position because the community has been and still is so good to me it's a community that I you know, I've been a part of for darn near 20 years now and I absolutely love. So it, it and I get it. And as a result, I get to choose to, to work with really incredible real estate agents, real estate professionals and help them achieve their goals. Nice. Nice. So if someone wanted to get involved in the industrial space today, where should they look? Are there any good organizations that have networking events or conferences or I don't know, heck, any books out there that they can dig yeah. into because there's kind of a dearth of knowledge in this yeah. space. I no, I, I think you're right. You know, I, I think it's podcasts. Uh, what I what I love what you do and 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 my podcast to get people to talk to people and and plug in. I think it's there's some specific podcasts, specific YouTube channels out there where where there's people like me who just dive in deep on the industrial side of things. It's it's really getting a good understanding of that because it's a it's a asset class that is just not discussed that often because it's, you know, it's not sexy, it's boring. It just is kind of out of sight, out of mind. And for all those reasons, that's what has me fall in love with it because I love real estate done really well is boring. It is literally get an asset, follow this process to put it in place. So that thing just generates cash flow. And then the fact that, you know, as I just said, the very first investment I've talked twice in five years, roughly, it's boring. And the money just hits the account every month. That's what I'm after because I want, it allows one to free up the other parts of their life to go do the exciting things with, you can with your family, whatever it is that one's passionate about other than real estate investments gone wrong, which you'd like to avoid. Yes, of course we do. Great. Well, 
Glad we had the chance to dig into your industrial experience today. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Neil, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Great. First one, what is the best deal you've ever done? Oh, the best deal I ever, I've ever done. I bought a... We've been going deep on any industrial side, but I'm going well, I'm I'm to pivot and tell you about a deal I did on the office side, specifically a medical office. I bought a three-pack of medical offices, and, and I'm rounding here. Let's say it's about $9 million, somewhere in that range. Bought a three-pack. All three came at the same time. I assigned three different purchase agreements. They were all tied to one another, meaning we had to close on the same day at the same time. I put three purchase agreements in place for two reasons. One, so that I could assign values to the properties as I saw fit. It was the same seller. He didn't care. It was the same tax issue for him at the end of the day. But for me, it allowed me to structure that so that I could do number two. I was going to assign, which I did, one of the properties off to another buyer. So ultimately, I signed another property off to another buyer. And instead of me taking a windfall of money, I took a windfall of equity because of the way I positioned the asset prices. So that when I closed, a it was a million, maybe a million six, a ballparking, say uh, uh, 1.5 million was my purchase price on the two assets. When I closed, they appraised, appraised for 2.5 million. When I closed, I went to table, closing table with zero money, had a lender, did 100% financing, zero money out of the pocket, cash flow after paying the debt, $102,000 a year. Whoa, dang. How did you come across that deal? On market. It was actually one that was on market in my own backyard. A whole bunch of people wanted one of the assets in the portfolio, the one I eventually wholesaled, but nobody else wrote an offer on the whole package. The seller wanted the whole package gone at one time. Okay. And you just happened to address his specific need there. Nice. So we had the best deal. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst deal. What is the worst deal you've Oh my ever gosh, done? this is, I, I'm sure I've got more than one fun story in the single family side, but I'm going to give you the, the worst deal I ever bought. I, I actually, at the time I thought it was going to be the best and then it turned into the worst. This was probably 10, 12 years ago, somewhere in that range, very early in my single family investing career. And I found a home. It was on the market just north of town. I say just north, like far enough north where you're not in town, you know, 15 miles or so. And out in the middle of nowhere, like 2,500 square feet, like I checked all these boxes and the bank had it for sale. It was a repo and kept reducing, reducing, reducing in price. And I was like, finally, I'm going to buy this thing. I already, I already, I know what the other agent has done wrong and why they haven't sold it. So I go put this thing under contract and I'm like, great, I got a, I got a killer deal. The butt of this is it's a dome home. Taylor, do you know what a dome home is? I do it not. is a home that is in the shape of a dome. Okay. <laughs> that That is as simple as what it is. And you don't know what it is because nobody builds these things because it's a terrible idea to build. <laughs> sounds, yeah. Sounds All right. So what I didn't know at the time was, although on paper, looks like a killer deal, The at the time was nobody financed this time. So I literally contract this property at 60 grand and I go and I put it on the market and I sell this thing under contract in a week for $96,000 doing no work. And I think I'm a genius, right? And what I find out is that the lender won't finance it. Okay, great. Next lender. Next lender won't finance it. Okay, great. Next lender. Yeah, I'm talking, I'm on three buyers deep at this point. And the price, keep, my price keeps falling. 
And I get to the point where I'm going, nobody's going to finance this thing. So fast forward a period of time, Fannie Freddie won't finance it. A local bank will. We were in a lending environment at the time where local banks didn't want to do anything. And so I'm going, all right, what am I going to do? And then I eventually get to a spot where I sell it on contract. First time I ever sold on contract. I was going, I just didn't do something. Sell it on contract. It looks like a positive deal on paper. You know, whatever. You know, ten, fifteen thousand dollar gain. That's fine. We go years down the line. He's paying. It's all good. He eventually pays me off. It's fine. So it's a win. But here's the, here's the kicker. You know, I make whatever fifteen thousand dollars over the course of four years. So it's not a loss, but it's not a good deal for me. This guy ends up selling it. I you know I sell it to him for seventy grand, seventy five grand. He ends up selling it to the Department of Transportation, the Iowa Department of Transportation. What has happened is that the corner this home sits on becomes the most deadliest corner in the state of Iowa. There is accident after accident. It's right on a highway. People, unfortunately, have very serious issues because of how this thing, you know, where, where you can see, where you can't see, everything. So the DOT is going, we're buying this property. We'll tear the property down and we're going to redo our whole highway. This guy, because he's brilliant, and I stay in touch with him because I, th- I I just love his story. He buys it for me for 70 whatever, engages an attorney at this point in time, sells it to the Iowa DOT for 200 <laughs> and they do nothing but level the house. Long-winded answer to your, to your worst deal ever. There you go. Yeah, little twist of the knife at yeah. the end there. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Get an educator, get a coach, get a trainer, get a partner, get somebody who knows more than you can shortcut your your path, your success. You're going to pay them or you're going to pay the street for what you learn and the street is more expensive. Nice. Nice. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Where can people find you to get in touch? Oh, best place to find me is the website, agentoptional.com. You're a realtor. You want to understand how to become agent optional, www.agentoptional.com. Great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. If you're enjoying the show as well, don't forget to look us up, hit subscribe, catch us here every weekday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.